Well, good evening. Welcome to our midweek devotional, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. It's really an interesting account that we have uh, to look at from Mark chapter 6, and there's two events in here, uh, the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod, and then the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to look at those two things, get a Bible, Mark chapter 6. Let's start with the beheading of John the Baptist. What a great story this is. It's in uh, Mark 6, 14 to 29. Point number one, notice the power of a righteous life to reach the conscience of wicked people. And I see that in verses 14 through 18. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod, Mark writes, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And John had been saying to Herod, this is the king, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so it's quite an account where even though John is dead and buried, Herod still has this incident on his mind. John's been executed. Like we're starting later on in the account. John's already beheaded. And, and Herod, Herod is still living in fear of the things that John had said. John had been pointing out the sinfulness of Herod's actions. And, and I guess what we learn here is it's, it's harder than you think to shut the voice of God out. Herod's been living in fear all this time. He's running when there's John the Baptist isn't even alive to chase him anymore. And you think of that Proverbs 28.1 that says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. And there's this seed of guilt. It's been in Herod. It's been turning him into a coward. He has, he's restless. He can't sleep. He's still thinking about the things that John the Baptist said when John the Baptist pointed out his sin. And, and, and that's what sin does. Even when you get your way, you get to do the things you want, the, the joy and the freedom that sin kind of momentarily brings, it's, it's an empty joy, it's fleeting, and, and it, leaves a, it leaves a fearfulness, it leaves a guilt, it leaves a hollowness on the inside. And so I guess the lesson here is no one, no one has to listen to God if they don't want to. But there's a terrible price to pay. Uh, everything that makes you strong on the inside, bold, courageous, a person of integrity, it all starts to hollow out and rot. Nothing is worse than that unescapable sense, you know, the unescapable sense that we've been disobedient, that we failed God when his truth gets pushed aside. You have to live with your conscience and Herod. Herod can't do it. Point number two, uh, notice how interest 
and knowledge in the truth can still come up short in terms of responding properly to the truth. I get that in uh, verses 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted, the hymn is John the Baptist, wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Okay, so this is before John's beheaded. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he, Herod, kept him, John, safe. And when he heard him, he was, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? He, Herod would listen to John. He, he kind of recognized this, this guy, he's saying what's true. He's saying what's right. He's perplexed because he doesn't want to give up this relationship that he has with Herodias. He heard him, was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so you, you kind of see how far Herod went in responding to John without ever yielding his heart. He's interested. That's what the text says. He's interested in what John had to say. He probably, deep inside, he knows that John is right. He maybe even felt guilty because even after John's beheaded, Herod is still haunted by his guilt. So he felt guilty knowing his actions were sinful. And, and what we learn here is knowing the truth and responding to the truth are two totally different things. Romans chapter 1 talks about how we hear the truth and, and our fallen response without the Spirit's help is we, we suppress it. Especially truth about our own sin, our own guilt. We hear it, we can acknowledge it at a certain level, but we squeeze it down. We suppress. That's the word Paul uses. And this is the kind, I think, this is the kind of hearing Jesus spoke about in his parable of the soils. I was looking at Mark. We studied this, Mark 4, 18 and 19. And others are the ones, the seeds sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. Herod's got this illicit, sinful relationship, and he wants it. He hears what John says. He doesn't even disagree with John, but he can't respond because he has these desires and they have the upper hand, see? And that's exactly what Jesus talked about, how that chokes out the word, chokes out the truth, and Herod can't respond to it. There's a living faith. Living faith always, when, when you hear the word and you see the truth of the word, you know you're responding to the word properly when you're not only devoted to the word, I keep talking about that, but your devotion to the word causes you to hate personal sin. Otherwise, your response to the word is you, you, can, you, can, you can kind of agree with the word the same level that, that demons do. James, James talks about this in James 2, 18 and 19. Some of you will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's, a, there's an agreement with certain factual data 
that's correct doctrine, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause a hatred of sin and wickedness. Whereas the proper response, Psalm 119, 128, therefore I consider all your precepts right, and I hate every false way. That's when you know you love the truth of the word, when the truth of the word causes you to hate sin. Until then, you're just dabbling with the word. Point number three, notice, I think this is important, sometimes there's very little outward reward for a life of holiness and righteousness in this twisted world. I get that in verses 22 to 29 of the sixth chapter. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head, of, the head of John the Baptist. 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Had to be on a platter. There's quite a picture. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, the fear of man, he, he doesn't want to look, doesn't want to look bad. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, laid it in a tomb. Think about this. John's head would have never been served up on a platter if John, like many Christians today, if John had just been content to mind his own business, what business it, was it of John's to go poking around in the king's personal life? I mean, the compromise would have been so easy. He didn't have to speak out against Herod's fallen moral standards, right? Today, today we'd, 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 we'd say he's in, John's intolerant. What, what business does he have forcing his religious values on someone else? You hear this kind of stuff all the time. Was Herod's personal life really John's business? Does, does everybody have to do what John wants just because John is a religious person? But you see, John's whole life is motivated by this consuming passion for God's glory. He cares about God's glory more than he does political correctness. He cares about God's glory more than he does being, being name-called or being persecuted for his convictions. Most of us aren't as fueled by that anymore. I mean, John felt that his own life was completely expendable, but his zeal for righteousness was not up for grabs. And you, you just can't help but think a, a thirst for uh, acceptability, popular appeal, 
political correctness. It can easily shut out the voice of truth from the public square, and John will have none of it. Remember, Jesus said, of, of those born among women, there was nobody greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus approves, Jesus endorses John's vocal convictions about the immorality of, of Herod. So the message of the gospel isn't just about receiving eternal life. It isn't just about saying God loves you. The message of Christ, as we see in the witness of his forerunner, John the Baptist, it, it just necessarily comes as a rebuke to a stubbornly proud, sinful world. Be, be careful. Be careful about worship, worship styles, worship songs that, that only speak of how much we love God. Get this. Worship songs and styles that only speak about how much we love God and don't say a word about how much we hate sin. That's the part that's disappearing from much of our worship in the church. Point number four. Let's look at the feeding of the 5,000. I want to talk to you about how to do a lot with a little. Mark 6.38 Take stock of all your resources. And here's the text, Mark 6, 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And, and when they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. This is what they could scrummage up from that boy. Five loaves, two fish. It's interesting, this whole account. There's 5,000 people. They all need feeding. And, and, and they, the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, well, let's send these people away so they can get something to eat. Jesus says, no, no, you feed them. We're going to feed them. So Jesus makes it clear he's going to do something to feed all these people. Mark says the disciples immediately say, you know, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed 5,000 people. And they're calculating. Hey, they're doing math. 200 denarii, 5,000 people. Here's what it would cost for food. We don't have enough money. Do, do, don't we do that? Jesus says, I want you to do this. And, and the words aren't even out of his mouth. I want you to do this. And here's a group of people, his followers, his disciples, and they're already calculating why it won't work. I want you to do this. No, no. 5,000 people, 200 denarii. That wouldn't be enough money. We don't have 200 denarii. No, Jesus, this, that's what they're saying. This won't work. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? Well, five loaves of bread and two fish. Most of us, here's what I take from this. Most of us are way too quick to feel like we don't have enough to really be all that God wants us to be and to do all that what our Lord wants us to do. We're too quick to conclude we can't do anything substantial for our Lord. Jesus says, take stock of the resources. Next, point number five, look at verse 41. Always begin any venture with a thankful heart. It says, 641, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, that's Jesus, and said a blessing 
broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and set them before the people, and he divided the two fish among them. It, it's not just the idea, well, develop a kind of a thankful heart. Isn't it nice that Jesus said grace? I, I don't think that's it. I think what happens is the disciples have already concluded they can't do this. Jesus says, we'll do it. Take stock of what you have. That was the first point. Five loaves, two fish. Jesus prays. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing the disciples, you, don't just make your bare calculations on your own strengths and your own resources. Look, look to God. Make, make a God space in the situation. Make room for God. Bring God into the picture. Thankfulness takes God into the picture. God's goodness, God's faithfulness. You have to have that in place. Point number six. Start working with what you have. I'm looking at Mark 6, 39 to 42. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, don't let your fear, the meagerness of what you think you have to work with, don't let that stop you from starting. You have to begin somewhere. Maybe it's teaching a class. Maybe it's ushering. Uh, maybe it's finding some way of serving with children. Maybe it's whatever, whatever it is God is calling you to do. You can't just dream about it and calculate why you can't do it. Start. Start somewhere. It's kind of like the headlights on your car when you're driving down the road at night. They don't show you all the way to your destination. You have to start. You have to keep moving. They show you more as you keep going down the road. And that's the way it is with, with God's provision, God's help, God's blessing, God's enabling. You start. You start somewhere. Don't just dream. And then let God start to work through you. Don't let fear, discouragement keep you from beginning. Here's what else. What else I see here. You and I will almost never have all the resources to finish the assignment at the beginning of the process. God doesn't give you everything for the task and then call you to move. God gives you enough to start moving and gives you more as you keep moving. It's like that headlight illustration. Seven, obey Jesus and and keep in touch with him. So Jesus is giving them all these instructions, breaking up into groups of hundreds and fifties, the loaves first, breaking them up, the fish next. So, so don't lean on your own understanding. When you've made the commitment to follow the Lord, do the next thing he tells you to do. You don't get all the instructions all the way down. Uh, watch and pray, stay close to the Lord, look to him, Begin where you are, start with the resources you have, and then just keep listening. Let the Holy Spirit prompt, direct, lead. <laughs> that's how you do that's how you do a lot with a little. Because that's all any of us ever gets to start out with. So John the Baptist 
Praise God for people who have the convictions to speak up even when they know it's going to bring persecution. Praise God for people like that. And any devotion to Jesus, any worship style that just teaches you about loving God without teaching you about hating sin isn't really teaching you to love God. And then the feeding of the 5,000. Don't start calculating why it won't work. When the Lord speaks, start where you are with what you have and look to him with a thankful heart. Great, great truths from God's word. Let's pray. We're so grateful that we have these times when we can get together and, and look at Jesus, the rate of Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul, beholding the glory of our Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so that's what we're doing, simply through the book of Mark. Help us to take these truths from our Lord and, and to have your Holy Spirit just carve them deeply into our lives. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. It's good to study the Word together. Love one another.